And, uh, yeah, my son is pastoring uh, the church there. He has been, he's been there, I don't remember, about 12, 14 years now, I guess. Uh, we, we, we left uh, Rhode Island in 2004 and moved to Texas and started helping uh, churches. But I'll tell you the truth, this church and your pastor has been more of a friend to me than I've been to you. And I appreciate your friendship and I, I appreciate your encouragement and, uh, the help that you've given to us over the years, and the great example. This is uh, this story, as I said this morning, needs to be told over and over because our young preachers need to learn how to do exactly what your pastor is doing here in uh, this area. I've always uh, uh, been thrilled about having an international ministry. I don't think the Lord wants us. We went to a town of 40,000 people in Rhode Island that had 22 Roman Catholic churches in it. And we had the French church, the Italian church, the, I mean, we had a church for every ethnic group that you can think of. And I, I just believe the Lord wants us to have a church that's uh, internationally applicable to where he said, uh, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord can be saved. And so I'm thrilled to see that happening in this place. To me, this is a, a, a rare opportunity that God has blessed in an unusual way and uh, really a, a model for a lot of other uh, church planters and young preachers if they could just learn from this uh, example. And God's blessed your pastor with uh, an unusual uh, degree of wisdom because not everybody could survive uh, from uh, moving from the Midwest to New York City and then winding up with a congregation building and, and uh, a happy church. Uh, that's a difficult that's a challenging uh, prospect, and I'm glad to see uh, uh, the other folks here tonight. Help me with the name. Newburgh. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm almost. They tell me that between 70 and 80 is the worst time because at 70 you start forgetting stuff, and at 80 they don't care anymore. <laughs> 80 they expect you to do that, but at 70, when you get about 70, then people uh, they blame you for everything and. And uh, you can't remember anything, and, and then, but when you get 80, they're just glad you're still around. So uh, I'm in that difficult spot, and so forgive me, for uh, Brother Mike, for slipping on that. Delighted that you're here tonight, and I'm so happy, and I'm humbled that so many of you enjoyed the preaching this morning. It, I enjoyed it. I enjoy preaching. I, I don't know what I'd do if I couldn't preach. I, I love to preach God's Word, and I love to help churches, and and help preachers. And, and to tell you the truth, I think what helps them, and uh, I think there has to be somebody who is a holy provoker. There has to be somebody that stirs us up by way of remembrance. And I don't take credit for that. I, I pray the Lord would make us a blessing and that the Holy Spirit would be the holy provoker. He would be the one that would stir us up because uh, it's awfully easy for us to become complacent and full of lethargy. And, uh, and if we're not careful, did you know... I was reading somewhere that most of the uh, problems that are in churches are because of unresolved conflicts uh, in the church, unresolved conflicts that people have with each other. And uh, we just, uh, we're so thankful when we find a church that's well-balanced, happy, full of people that love God, and they do what God expects them to do. It's a blessing. I was reading about an Englishman that was seated on a train between two ladies who were arguing about the window. Uh, one claimed that she would die of heat stroke if it stayed closed. 
And the other one said that she would die of pneumonia if it was opened. And the ladies called a conductor who did not know how to resolve the conflict. He didn't know what to do. But there was a man sitting nearby, and he spoke up. He said, first open the window, and that will kill one of them. Then close the window, and that will kill the other one. Then we'll all be able to have some peace. And, you know, uh, that may bring uh, peace, but God really wants us to negotiate a settlement with people. I was talking to a preacher last year sometime back, and he said, I hate politics. He said, I hate politics. I'm not going to get involved. I don't want to go to a fellowship meeting. I don't want to be around other preachers. I just hate politics. And he had this uh, misplaced allegiance to himself, the Bible, and the Lord, which I guess he thought he was the only true vine. I don't know what he thought. But I asked him this question. I said, are you married? He said, yeah. I said, well, you've been involved with politics for a long time. Everything we do, we have to learn to negotiate with somebody. Amen? You have to learn to negotiate with people. And, and, the, and the solution is not just kill everybody that's got wrong ideas. God wants us to negotiate a settlement, and He wants to bring peace. He is our peace. He wants to, he wants to make uh, where there's enmity, He wants to bring love and, and uh, cooperation. And, and so that's why I would like for you to open your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 3. And if you're able, I'd like for you to stand. I'm so thrilled about the Newburgers' uh, New opportunity and how God's blessing their work. And uh, I tell people about it everywhere. His motorhome is sitting down in Oklahoma at my brother's acreage. And uh, we appreciate the fact that uh, they've been uh, uh, generous in sharing with that. And we pray that God will continue to bless them and open up many doors of opportunity and give them fruit for their labor. Amen. And I, I hope that story repeats itself over and over and over here in New York City. We can't, we can't raise enough preachers to reach all the people there in New York City alone. And I like what Larry Clayton said. You've probably heard him say it. He said, if you put a fence around New England or around the East and they spoke a different language, we'd call it a mission field. But because they speak English and there's no fence around it, we hardly pay attention to the millions of people right here in our own country. And I'm hoping that I can stir some young men to pray about coming to the Northeast and to New York City and New England because there's still a, a fruitful and fertile field. Many people that don't have the, uh, churches like this church in their neighborhood. I believe God wants a church like this in everybody's neighborhood. I don't believe in the mega churches. I believe God. No, no. Uh, the guy that does the, uh, the surveys, uh, right, uh, Barna, he said that all the church, churches who have pastors who are not uh, super gifted pastors should close their churches and go to the mega churches. I don't believe that for a minute. I believe that God wants a church uh, in every neighborhood in America. And uh, we're all gifted differently, and we can't all be gifted the same way. And the truth is, if we have a heart for God, that's what God blesses, and that's what God wants. So I'm praying that God will uh, plant more churches like this one all over this city, state, and all over New England. And we have some real revival going on in, uh, in uh, Maine right now, and some church planting going on in Massachusetts. And so... Uh, we thank the Lord for that. I remember Floyd Paschal years ago. He's one of the reasons that got us encouraged about coming to Maine. There was a whole wave of men that came from 
uh, some of our churches in the Midwest that started churches in the Northeast, and we're praying that God will do that again. Second Peter chapter 3, please notice verse, uh, let's look at verse 1. This second epistle, beloved, I write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of the apostles of the Lord, knowing this, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Now go down to verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, where not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be destroyed, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? That's a long question. That's based on the promise of God. Since God has promised to come, don't you think it's a good idea to think about what kind of a Christian you ought to be? Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll help us tonight. Lord, again, we know that without you we can do nothing. And I pray that you'll help me to be everything you expect me to be. Help me to live up to your expectations, though, Lord. I know I cannot live up to man's expectations and face all the time uh, criticism and, and uh, debate. And yet, Lord, my goal is not to win the argument. My goal is to live up to your expectations in my own life. I pray that you'll help me to do that even tonight and pray that you'll bless your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <coughs> I think what the world needs is some authentic people. You know, I've been to uh, uh, Baghdad and I've been to Jordan. I've been to uh, actually 23 countries preaching the gospel and helping missionaries and, and helping plant churches and, and supporting missionaries and doing institute work. And what this world needs is some authentic Christians. It needs some people who know what they believe and they're not afraid to practice what they believe. Uh, because uh, in the, uh, for instance, in the Arab world, if, you're, if you don't follow the Muslim tradition, then you're automatically designated as a Christian. So if you're over there and you are a, a Bible-believing person, you don't use the word Christian, you use the word believer. Because uh, the, over there, the word Christian is simply a political term. It simply means you're not Muslim. And uh, so simply not to be a Muslim doesn't mean that you're a biblical believer. It doesn't mean that you're born again. It doesn't mean you're going to heaven uh, and so there's far more in the world than just one option or the other. There's a lot of options. But to be a believer in Jesus Christ, you must be born again. It's not just rejecting one philosophy or teaching. It's accepting the Word of God. When we accept God's Word, the Bible says we're born again, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God which lives and abides forever. I'm glad that God's Word planted in a heart where there's fruitful understanding and a soil that's willing to receive the engrafted Word. I'm glad that God makes of us new creatures 
uh, when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a blessing that is. So it doesn't matter what ethnic group we're from or what ex-religion we were in. We come together under the banner of the cross of Jesus Christ, and we become brothers and sisters, and this becomes our family. And I'm thankful as I travel, I have, be, I have developed uh, an extended family across America. I'm so thankful for the friends and people that pray for us and people that are interested in us. More people are interested in us today than were ever interested in me as a lost person. I'm so thankful for that. I, I, uh, I grew up with somewhat of an inferiority complex and was the youngest of three in a family. And, and frankly, when God began to bless and bless His Word, we began to keep His Word and follow His teachings. Uh, the blessings started coming, and I felt so unworthy and felt like it was a mistake and how that God could uh, never... I mean, good things just hadn't happened to me up until... I got saved. I think that's one of the reasons we were able to endure the 28 winters of New England. Uh, the first year that we were there, someone said, well, most Midwesterners come here and they can't make it through the first winter. And I said, hey, you know, and the people were cold and the times were hard and all of that. And you understand those things. And I said, well, you know, some of us just, you know, it's just another hard day and a difficult life. I mean, that's we we didn't grow up uh having everything we wanted and doing going everywhere we wanted to go. And so hard times were not uh, a surprise to me. And I think perhaps that's one of the things. I told a preacher's children not long ago, I stayed in their home. They have a brand-new home, brand-new granite, brand-new cars, brand-new uh, granite countertops, brand-new, uh, you know, a lot of toys. When they were little, I used to bring them things and bring money to them and share with them and, this time I went to them, and their daddy has, you know, overwhelmed them with things. And I said, I feel so bad for you children. They said, why? I said, you'll never know what hard times are. They just have grown up with everything. I didn't grow up that way, and I'm not jealous of it. I'm thankful for it. I hope they appreciate it. I hope they appreciate what God's provided through their parents and, and what God's done. And, and remember that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. Did you know that in every promise that we claim from God's Word, every promise we have from God's Word, there is a condition to be met. No, no, we don't get to go to heaven just because we want to. No, no, the Bible says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth and believe in thine heart that God has raised Him, Jesus, from the dead, thou shalt be saved. There is the if. There's always the if in the conditions of the covenants that God makes. It's God's covenant, and we don't get to renegotiate the deal. So guess what? That if thou shalt believe with thy heart and confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, thou shalt be saved. But guess what? If you don't, you cannot be saved. You cannot be saved on your terms or apart from the terms that God put in His covenant. It's His covenant, and we don't get to whine our way and avoid the circumstances. Another thing is, the Bible says... Give, and it shall be given to you again, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Well, no, no, he didn't say, I'm going to give it to you so you can give. He said, you give, and I'll give unto you. That's his covenant. He made the deal. He wants you to learn to give. He doesn't have to learn to give. He already knows about all that. He doesn't have to be proved. You have to be proved. And so God says, give, and it shall be given to you. And guess where it's going to come from? Pressed down, shaken together, and running over shall men give under your bosom. Do you know every blessing that you can name tonight? 
I know it comes from God. The Bible says that. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. But did you know that every blessing that you have tonight came through some man's hands or some woman's hands, some person's hands? You get your paycheck, somebody signed it. You got your inheritance, your relatives left it to you. You got your gifts, somebody bought it and gave it to you. Every blessing that we have, perhaps with a possible exception of our health, which only God has control over in most circumstances, we get through the hands of men. And even then, he uses doctors and physicians and nurses to help us in our difficult times. And sometimes we give them the credit uh, for what he's doing. I had, uh, most of you know, I had uh, uh, heart surgery a couple years back. Three days after having a heart valve replacement, I was back in the hospital. I brought him an a, uh, uh, edible arrangement. And uh, took it to the nurses and the nurse and the therapy. The therapy guy saw me. He says, "Wow," he said, "You're walking." You're... And it's like he was so surprised because I think most people, when they have trouble, they wallow in it. I was brought up. If you have, I mean, if you're sick, it's like almost shameful. I mean, come on, get back on your feet. Let's go. Let's go. Dad didn't like sick people. I mean, he didn't like for us to wallow and make excuses because my brother and I used to say, you know, he bought us a <clears throat> lawnmower about this tall, Homco lawnmower. Orange. He wanted us to get a job. That's what he wanted. He wanted us to make money. So he bought us a lawnmower and <clears throat> sent us out to mow grass. And my brother and I used to say, we can't. And in Texas they say can't. It means can't. <coughs> said, we can't. But Dad taught us how can't could. We could do a lot more than we thought we could do with Dad's encouragement. And uh, so... I think a lot of times uh, <clears throat> we allow ourselves to kind of wallow in uh, our weakness or our infirmity or the problem that we have when we just get down there and, and we think nobody's got it like us. But God said that Jesus was tempted at all points like as we are, yet without sin. Wouldn't it be good if we could learn to have problems and not participate in sinful attitudes because we have problems? I mean, sometimes we have problems and say, yeah, but he started it. So we're just as bad, but we justify ourselves because somebody else started it, see. And uh, so uh, we're living in the last days. I don't know how much time we've got left. As far as I understand, there's not much left to be fulfilled uh, before the Lord uh, returns. He promised to come again. He said, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Christians need to be thinking about that. It bothers me. It really bothers me that after an attack after these murderous things that are happening and after all of the difficulties that our country has, that uh, the next uh, thing that people are involved in is a, is a football game. And it's like they forgot all about uh, what's happening and nobody repented of anything. Nobody thought anything happened because of anything they might be thinking or the liberalism in their life or the godlessness in their own life. They're all thinking about who's going to win the next game and who's going to bring home the pennant and who, whose team are you on? I don't wear any, I wouldn't wear a baseball cap with a team on it. I can't take the conflict. And, uh, I, I, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to put the stickers on my car. I, and, and, and because I'll tell you the truth, I think life, there's a lot more serious, we ought to take life a lot more seriously than we do. And we, uh, we live a frivolous life thinking, well, maybe, maybe uh, we'll have a good time and maybe we'll be blessed. And, and, uh, and, and, and yet we forget the covenant that God made with us about, uh, as for instance with Joshua, thou will observe to do all that I've commanded thee, then thou shalt have 
good success. You're not going to have good success on your terms. You don't get to rewrite the contract. You're going to have good success on the terms that God wrote in His Word. And if you keep seeking the world and pleasure and success in the world without looking to God for your guide and your strength and your help and your protection and your source of uh, blessing, you're not going to have, you, you're going to, you may have bad success. You may have money and no health. You may have things and die early. You may wind up with everything you're desiring, but God says, I don't want you around because you have a perverted sense of values. God wants us to love Him with all of our heart and lean not to our own understanding. And so that's one of the reasons that Peter wrote these words is because scoffers had come. And they said, where's the promise of His coming? He said He's going to come again, but He hasn't done it. I've been hearing that ever since I was... Saved, And I used to hear older preachers preach, and I'd say, yeah, I heard that, you know, that's a... But, you know, and I, and I don't think it's just because I'm getting older. I, I think you'd have to be blind not to see the circumstances that are leading up to the end-time events in which the Lord is going to come and rapture His church out of this world and call us home to glory. I'm looking forward to that day. We're going to get a new body, a, 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 a house not made with hands, and... We're going to be changed gloriously and completely. We have been saved. The day we got saved, we were completely saved. You don't, you don't get saved inch by inch. You get saved all at one time. You're born of the Spirit of God like a baby is born. But you grow in grace. And you're being saved from bad habits during your life. hope you are. I hope you're still struggling against sin. I hope you're being saved from the bad thoughts, bad traditions, bad ideas, homemade religion that this world is so uh, ensnared with. And uh, that's going to go on. It's a struggle. We live in a, in a sin-cursed world, and that's going to go on. You're going to have a struggle all the way to the end. But when the end comes, you're going to be saved from the presence of sin. And God's going to give you a glorified body. And you walk in heaven on streets of gold with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I think sometimes we forget that we're not just here to put in time and enjoy life. God put us here on purpose to do His will and to win other people to Christ. And so I hope that you'll keep that in mind. I want you to look here. The first thing I want to mention is the Lord, verse at number nine, uh, verse number nine says, "The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. The Lord, God is not a promise breaker. You and I may be promise breakers. We may have made contracts or promises or commitments that we did not or could not keep. But God never has made a promise that He couldn't keep or wouldn't keep. He's not a, prim- a promise keeper. He's not slack concerning His promise. That is, He's not negligent in fulfilling it, as some men may infer." This long delay uh, or the lapse of time which intervenes before the threatenings of God are executed does not arise from neglect nor forgetfulness, as some men suppose, but from forbearance and long-suffering and hope that sinners may repent. God's long-suffering. He wants people to be saved. He's not a promise-breaker. I'm glad that God didn't close the door on grace uh, before it found its way to my doorstep. Aren't you glad about that? How selfish, aren't you glad about that? How selfish could we be uh, to say that we hope the end happens tomorrow and after all we're saved, but think of the millions of people in the world, and there are still millions who would believe if they could hear the gospel. There are people who would believe. There are people, I've been to places where 
they'll walk all night to hear somebody preach the gospel and preach your heart out to them. And then when you get done, they say, do it again. They want to hear the gospel. They want to hear more from God's Word. They want to hear what Jesus will do for them and what He's done for them on the cross. And so I, I think sometimes that we get, uh, we get cloistered with philosophy and vain deceit and the world and carnality until we think that everybody's heard it and most people rejected it. And I want to tell you, not everybody's heard it yet. And not everybody's rejected it yet. And uh, we need to keep uh, in mind that He's not a promise breaker and He's not uh, slack concerning His promise. And God is long-suffering uh, to us word. That means that this delay should be regarded as a proof of His forbearance. A proof of the fact that sinners are not immediately cut down is a proof that he's long-suffering. Because there are people who deserve the judgment of God in our estimation, and they're not immediately judged. We don't always understand that. You know, I've heard people say they don't understand why bad things happen to good people. I don't understand why good things happen to bad people. But they do. And we don't understand why God allows those things to happen. But, you know... And we sometimes get the idea, in fact, I think we went through this with 9-11. Everybody was, uh, besides, you know, blaming each other, uh, some were so presumptuous as to blame God, as if God didn't take care of this. And do, you think that, do you think that that was a surprise to God in any way? Do you think that God didn't know what was happening and what's going on in the minds and hearts of people? God knows what's going on in this world. And He knows where Christ's rejectors are. He knows uh, how to bring the attention of reality to people. And I'm not justifying it. I'm not saying they deserve what they got. Please don't think that. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that did it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurred to God? God can't be surprised. And uh, so He's not a promise breaker. And He's long-suffering. And He's not willing that any should perish. He wants uh, people to be saved. I remember... Uh, some of you remember that I went to Baghdad in 2004, I believe it was, and I took six other preachers with me. One of them got shot and killed while we were there, and he was riding in a van. They had gone to Babylon, and I, I had not gone to on that uh, trip that day, And uh, but five of them, let's see, four of them had got in the van and gone on that trip, and they got shot up by... Uh, Terrace and and the van got shot up, all the windows uh, shot out of it. And, and John Kelly, my friend who pastored an hour down the road for me, is a good friend, a loyal man of God, an ex-Marine. And uh, he uh, he got shot and died that day in Baghdad. And uh, but you know what's happened to that church? His mother got saved, his sisters got saved, his wayward son came back to the Lord. His son got an honor in the Navy. He's on a fleet, uh, on, a, on an aircraft carrier, and he got the highest decoration an enlisted man can have uh, uh, serving on that ship after his father was killed. And the two of his uh, children are lawyers. His wife's working with CLA today. I'm telling you, the family has blossomed. The church has blossomed. I'm not saying I like the idea that my friend was killed. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying that God used it for his glory. God got glory to His name out of it. And we don't understand that. We don't like it when God does things uh, not the way that we suggest that He does. And many people get angry with God and with the church and with other Christians because God's not doing things the way I think He should. And God just doesn't have to give answer to you and me. But He's not, but he's not slack. He's long-suffering. 
He's not willing that any should perish. He wants all to come to repentance. And so verse 9 says he's long-suffering. And if the day of the Lord seems delayed, it's not because he's slack. It's rather because uh, he's giving time to the world to repent. He's giving time because once, uh, once uh, that uh, he calls his people home, there won't be a second chance. There's no purgatory. There's no keeping place. There's no paradise other than in heaven. There's no place to, for people to hope for a second chance. If they don't get saved before Jesus comes again, they're not going to be able to be saved uh, in the same economy like we have the grace today. And so, not only that, but he's not an unfair judge. He's not slack. He's not, um, he's long-suffering. He's not a promise breaker. And he's not an unfair judge. There's, a, there's a, an account in Luke chapter 7 of a Pharisee. And uh, he had a dinner and, and Jesus was there and... Anyway, Jesus said in Luke 7 and verse 41, there was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed him 500 pence and the other 50. Now, you get it? 500, a debt of 500 pence and a debt of 50. That's one owed ten times as much as the other. And we look around, and, and the Lord is trying to illustrate this for us because we look around at people, and we like to say things like, well, I'm not as, not as bad as they are, and I'm better than most. And we may not verbalize it that way, but we tend to think that way. Well, at least I'm not like that. At least I'm not a drunken, crawling, in the gutter beggar on the street. Oh, does that make you not a sinner? Does that mean that you're not a sinner? No, no. The Lord doesn't look at it the same way. Luke. We, we look at degrees of sin, and God just looks at the fact of sin. See, I remember when I was called to preach, I, was, I got down my knees at an altar like this altar here. I'd been saved about two years, and I surrendered. I said, Surrender to be a preacher. And in fact, I wanted to be a preacher. And I thought that was sinful. I thought it was sinful and wicked that I wanted to be a preacher. And I had people in Rhode Island, they told me, they said, well, I thought I was called to preach and then I realized it was just the devil. And I said, no, 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 no. The devil never put it in your heart to be a preacher. If it's in your heart to be a preacher, you've probably already been called. And so I, was, I surrendered and I wanted to be a preacher. And I found out later that God said, if you're going to be a preacher, he that desires the office of a bishop desires. It's a good thing to desire the office of a bishop. But I didn't know that at the time. And I was just about 20 years old or so, 21 years old. And I was down at the altar and I told the pastor, I, he said, what would you come for? And I said, I want to surrender my life to be a preacher. And he said, well, why are you weeping about it? I said, I don't think he'll let me. He said, why? I said, I've been too bad of a sinner. Now, there's a homemade excuse and I said uh, and I like I love the wisdom that God gives some of his men he said to me he said well did you ever murder anybody now here I am weeping because I'm a bad sinner and he accused me of being a worse sinner than I thought I was I said well no I never murdered anybody what kind of sinner do you think I was anyway I, I recovered from my remorse immediately and got a little angry that he would think I was that. And I said, no, I never murdered anybody. He said, well, the Apostle Paul did, but he said, I don't suppose you'll be as good a preacher as he was anyway. He, he knew how to t- take the, the wind right out of my excuse and right out of my sails. And whatever excuse you've got, God's got an answer for that. And whatever it is that you keep bringing up why you couldn't do what God wants you to do, God's got an answer for that. 
God just wants you to do the best you can with what you've got to work with. And it doesn't really matter whether you were a murderer, a drug addict, or you're just a liar. or just See, we, we say a liar is not as bad as a murderer. But God said all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's not a man uh, upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. So God looks at the fact of sin, not the degree of sin. We like to look at the degree of sin. And it might be a good idea to look at the degree of sin if you're hiring somebody to count your money, you know. Or if you're hiring somebody to take care of your babies, it might be good to look at their track record. I'm saying that. And, and I know that God can forgive somebody for embezzlement from the bank, but they're probably not going to get their job back at the bank. See? So that's when you talk about the degree of sin. But God forgives us based on the fact that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Not just certain kinds of sin, not just certain sins, but all sin, even sins that are disgusting to you and me, God can forgive. And God can restore people that you and I might have a hard time uh, forgiving and loving. But He loved us, and He wants us to learn to love other people. And you're not going to learn that by reading books. You're gonna, if you're going to learn to have compassion and learn to love, you're going to learn it from this book right here. Because, uh, you know... Compassion in many homes, in my life, there wasn't compassion. I didn't grow up around giving and compassionate people. It was more of a competition and downgrading and, and controversy all the time and fighting. Uh, and, and so whatever I know about giving and compassion, I learned from studying this book and following Jesus Christ. That's to the best of my ability. And, so, and, I, and, I, and I don't say that I'm a great example, but, I, but I, am, I am different. I will say that he's still working on me and he's... I'm thankful that he's brought me this far. Hopefully, he can take me all the way. So, he's forgiving. And uh, actually, there were these two debtors. One owed him ten times as much as the other one. And, uh, <clears throat> and when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both in Luke 7, verse 42. And Jesus said, Tell me, therefore, which of them love him most? Verse 43, Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. So the problem with folks that have never recognized themselves as sinners, they won't do very much loving. When they recognize they've been forgiven of a lot, then they'll demonstrate their appreciation by loving. See? And so that's why it's important to recognize our sinfulness. It's important for us to understand that we may not all have the same sin or the same kind of sin, but we all have sin. And when God forgives us, that ought to make us thankful and recognize that He uh, loves us enough to forgive us. He turned, uh, He said, Thou hast rightly judged. And He turned to the woman and said unto Simon, He said, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. I gave me. Uh, thou gavest me no water for my feet. She hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. And thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. So sometimes people get the idea that it's just, you know, I, I have a sermon I preach It's called They Prayed the Prayer, but they didn't get the gift. Sometimes we get the idea that it's just, a, oh, yeah, I did that. I did that when I was a kid. And, I, and, and they, they want to be included in the number of the saved and the redeemed. 
But there's never been any evidence that they were sorry about their sin. Never been any evidence of repentance or a changed life or a thankfulness for God's forgiveness for the wickedness that they had done in times past. They just say, yeah, I've been there and done that. Yeah, did that. Check that off. Yep, 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 yep. I'm okay because I did that. And that's really not what salvation is about. Salvation is when we recognize the wickedness of our own deceitful heart and we ask God's forgiveness and cleansing and He gives us a new spirit, a new idea, a new uh, attitude towards life, towards the Bible, towards other people, and He makes us into the children of God. He's the one that does that. We don't, we don't grow into becoming the children of God. We're born into it. And when we're born into the family of God, then we need to grow in grace. And so He is forgiving. She saw herself as a wicked sinner. So did Simon. Simon saw this wicked woman who was uh, providing ointment and water and kisses to the Savior, and he saw her as a sinner and wished that she'd just get out of the way. But she saw the Savior as a willing Savior. Simon didn't see himself as a needy sinner. He didn't see himself as a sinner, and that's why he didn't understand what Jesus was trying to teach. Here's someone that's got ten times as many sins as you do, but they got genuine salvation because they knew what they'd been forgiven of. See, sometimes we just have a generic attitude, yeah, I'm a sinner. But we never know, we never really even admit to ourselves or to God what kind of a sinner we were. And we never ask His cleansing or forgiveness. And we just kind of want to be identified with the name Christian, with the crowd. And at least we're not like those, and at least we're not like them, and we're better than some. And we miss the point. And so God requires all to repent. Paul said in 1 Timothy 2, Verse 4, he will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So all men deserve to be prayed for because they're perishing. All men deserve to be prayed for. No, repentance is not a work that we can take credit for. Repentance is not possible without the Lord's intervention. And uh, verse 4 of our, our of our text says... Uh, that uh, God, that all all need to be saved because they are lost. All men need to uh, must share the gospel because God will have them to be saved. God wants people to be saved, and all lost men need to be saved. And I know sometimes uh, in our uh, shyness or the timidity that we have, we we don't believe that they can be saved. But you know, I I was in the eighth grade. And uh, was already, I mean, look, I remember being in the second grade. I remember being in the second grade, big wall clock on the wall. I was sitting on the front row, not by choice. I was sitting on the front row of the class, second grade, big clock on the wall. The clock was just ticking very slowly, and I'm sitting there looking at it. And I, in my mind, I said this already, second grade, ten more years. I'm already in prison. I mean, I felt like school was prison. I hated it. And I was sitting there watching the clock tick. And so by the time I was in the eighth grade, I was a bad student. I didn't, I didn't do well. I started reading adventure stories. And I read about Big Red. And I read about the Northwest Passage. And I read about um, horse stories and farm ranch stories. And I got into that. And I really enjoyed that. And I was sitting in the English class next to a girl named Kathy Copeland. Kathy Copeland was a beautiful girl, about the same age as me, same class. And uh, her father was the song leader in the Bible Baptist Church in Enid, Oklahoma. That was our hometown. I was into Longfellow Junior High School. She never 
invited me to Sunday school. Never. Sitting next to me. The whole eighth grade year. I knew her for several years. She, she never invited. No, no. They wouldn't want to send her like him. Black leather jacket, motorcycles. No, no. They wouldn't want that guy to come to their youth department. Why would they want him to come? He's not like them. See? You never know what God might do. Kathy was a beautiful girl, and she was friendly enough to me, and we never became close friends. But when I got to church and I went there, I found out that she was in the choir. She was in that church and never had invited me to that church, to the teen meetings or anything. Found out another thing, the preacher's son was in that church, was in that school. He was a year younger than me, but he never approached me, never invited me to a youth activity at all. Can you imagine what you're missing by overlooking people because of their outward appearance? By over, just because they look gruff and look stoic and they don't look like they want to talk. Can you imagine how that God is missing opportunity to reach people because we are afraid of their outward appearance? When all the time they may be hungering and thirsting for somebody to reach and show them the way to live and show them how they can know the truth that will set them free. And I had no idea. I had no idea. I was living such a hell-bent life for my own uh, advantage and for my own uh, sinful conduct that I had no idea. Uh, what Christianity was about. I knew there was a Bible, and I knew the Bible was supposed to be God's Word, but I went to a Protestant church that taught, do good and share, you know, give to UNICEF. That's what we learned at the Protestant church. And we hung the greens in the wintertime. We hang wreaths all up and down the pillars in the church, just like the, just like the, the Romish churches do. And so, so they didn't invite me, and so I was, and family, and finally I got, I got thrown out of high school. In the 11th grade, I said to somebody one day, I said, you remember the day that Kennedy got shot? And they said, no, Pastor, we weren't born yet. And, you know, you look at adults and you think everybody's got the same history. They don't. There's some young people out there. So I was, it was the year that Kennedy got saved. I got, no, I'm sorry, got shot. No, I don't, I don't think that happened. But Kennedy got shot and I got thrown out of high school the same year. And uh, so I, I went to a different school the next year, and I did graduate, finally played football for the Gold Bugs, the Alva Gold Bugs in northwest Oklahoma. And so I met my wife. Uh, we didn't court. No, no, we didn't court. We didn't, we, we didn't have any. Nothing was according to the Bible, according to God's plan. All I can tell you is God's grace is sufficient, and he can work things out when, even when we foul them up. Because he's not limited as to whether or not we do what he wants. He has a way of helping us to want what he does. And so I met my wife at the A&W. She was with her girlfriend. I was with her girlfriend's steady in his car. And he wanted to be with his girlfriend. And so we, my wife and I got thrown together. She was about 17 years old. I was about 18 years old. And I pursued that relationship. I started seeing her regular, and, and uh, I asked her to marry me, and she said yes to me and about five other guys. And she was really playing the field at that time. And I was pursuing her. I was eager to be involved with her. And then one Sunday morning, we'd been seeing each other, I guess, about a year, and one Sunday morning, uh, I heard her father's 56 Chevrolet drive up in our driveway over at my mother's house, and I went out to see what she wanted, and she was weeping. 
And she said, uh, she blurted out, would you go to church with me? Now, remember, I'd been doing all the pursuing. This is the first time she asked me to go somewhere. I'd been doing all the pursuing and chasing, and, and her mother had been trying to run me off. And so I said, sure, I'll go to church with you. I said, but why are you weeping? She said, I'd have gone to the moon with her. if she'd said. I, I said, where do we get on board? I, I'd, have, I'd have gone anywhere she wanted me to go. And I said, uh, why are you weeping? And she said, I just got saved this morning. I said, oh, like I knew what that was all about. <laughs> good, I said. That's good. She got baptized that night in the evening service. I didn't go to church that night. But I started going with her the next week or so, and it won't be long until we'll be going to church together 50 years. Can you believe that? And it's all because... And no, no, we didn't get. No, no, this wasn't uh, Isaac and Rebecca. This, this wasn't uh, Abraham and Sarah. This was two kids that met on the street. We met at the A and W. But praise God, somebody corralled us. You know what she went to church for? It was Friend Day, and that church was up about 800 people, and they were pushing for a thousand. And my wife's brother was on the staff, and he pressed her to come to church on that day, and she says, okay, I'll go, and I'll just I'll get it over with, and I won't have to go anymore. Really, that was the attitude she had. I'll just go and get it over with, and he'll quit bugging me about it. You just, soul winners, you can't get them to quit bugging you, you know, once they focus on you. And so, so she went to church. Her mother was there, and, and her brother was there, and she got saved the very first time. Can you imagine your friends getting saved the very first time? they could? You ought to expect that. You ought to expect God to do great things. You ought to pray that God would, would, would call out a people for His name when you, when you get them to the house of God, when they can hear the Word of God. And so she, she got saved. She got baptized. She got me in church. We got, we both, I got baptized. We got married in that church and started a family, and I went on the church staff. This all happened so fast. No instruction how to, be, how to court, no, how to be a father, how to be a husband. None of that. We didn't have any of that instruction. It's amazing that we're still together. The first five years were trial and error, believe me. Mostly error. <laughs> and, and God has given us this journey, and hopefully... When we're done, there'll be some other people that's been influenced because back there at the A&W, God allowed us to get together. Now, I'm not saying that was an ideal situation. I'm not saying that's the way it ought to be done, but God had a purpose in it. And he had, he had a, in his mind, he said, here's two people that I can put together. They can, they can learn to love me and love each other, and I can use them for my glory. And every time that we've given more or done more, God's blessed us beyond our wildest expectations. We have, God's taken better care of us than we can take care of ourselves. So, God's not an unfair judge, but He requires all people to repent, and all men deserve to be prayed for, uh, prayed for. And all saved men, all lost men need to be saved, and all saved people need to share the gospel. We need to share the gospel with other people. That's why it's good to have a special day and have special service and have something that as a little out of the ordinary, so it might get people's idea that they could come to church. But there's another thing. Verse 10 says, not only does He require all men to repent and He's forgiving, but He will come. He says in, in verse 10 of our text, um, the day of the Lord will come 
as a thief in the night. The day of the Lord will come. You know, when you think of a thief in the night, you think of someone coming when you're not expecting them. Coming when you're unaware, it reminds me of the, you know, I think my wife is convinced that we're going to die by car wreck because she makes a great uh, backseat driver, but she's in the front seat. And so, you know, she micromanages my driving. And uh, it reminds me of the guy, uh, you know, he was upstairs and his wife was always hearing, <clears throat> always hearing a burglar downstairs, always. I heard a burglar all the time, every night, you know. And she'd make him get up and get his flashlight and go down and uh, check it out. Never found anybody down there. But she wanted him to check every time she heard a noise. So one night he goes down there and he has a flashlight and a pistol. And he goes down there and there is a burglar in the house. And he sneaks up on him. He shines a light on him. He's got the pistol and he's shaking. You know, and the guy turns around. He says, don't shoot. And he says, oh, no, no. He says, I'm not going to shoot. He said, I want you to come upstairs and meet my wife. She's been expecting you for 10 years. <laughs> I kind of feel that way about car wrecks. My wife's convinced we're going to die in a car wreck sooner or later. And I hope that doesn't happen, and I, I drive carefully. I haven't had a ticket for years and years and years, and I, I do the best I can, but you can't fight an attitude that's convinced of something. You know what I'm saying? So, But the Lord's going to come when we least expect it, as a thief in the night. He's going to catch us unaware, and nobody, not even your modern-day scholars, know when that's going to be. I remember in 1982, I don't know if any of you can remember. No, it's like Kennedy's death. You don't remember that. But anyway, in 1982, they said the planets were all going to get on one side of the solar system, and the solar system was going to get lopsided and fall out of the universe. And this was surely going to be the second coming. And people really got panicky about that. All the planets were going to be on the You know, they're circling the sun, but at one point they were going to all be on the same side, and somehow the solar system would get lopsided. Well, that didn't work out. And, uh, you know, and there's people today still making irrational, ludicrous uh, statements about when the Lord's going to come. And the Lord himself says, nobody knows that. No, not, no, not the angels of heaven don't even know that. <clears throat> but he's going to come. It's a promise. And he's not a promise breaker. He's a promise keeper. And he's going to come. He is. Jesus said, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. He is going to come. Don't ever think he's not coming. It's not because of his slackness. It's not because he's a promise breaker. He is going to come, but he's concerned about as many people being saved. This world is burgeoning with people, and most of them are lost people, and they need to know the Lord as their Savior. So he will come. And uh, certainly, um, we look at verse 10. It says, also in verse 10, And uh, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So we talk about the Lord. Now we mention briefly the earth. The earth will be burned up. It's going to be burned up. That's I've never understood people that were hoarding water and food and, I don't know what all, clothes and everything, and the caves and stuff, thinking they're going to survive the end-time events. Listen, if you're saved, you're not even going to be here for the end time events. And if you are saved, uh, you know, you need to live this life as a testimony uh, to the Lord. It says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. So I don't know if you remember last September, but hundreds of homes were 
uh, burned up in a fire out on the west coast. Two, several fires, actually. There was one, the Butte fire, uh, and then there was uh, also uh, the Valley fire uh, in September of this uh, last uh, September. And in the Butte fire, in the uh, the Valley fire, there was 13,000 people displaced, and there was 585 homes and hundreds of other buildings destroyed. It took 2,793 fire workers to put it out or contain it. And one person was killed. And then in the Butte fire, 71,780 acres were burned. 10,000 people were displaced from their homes. And uh, there were 233 homes, 175 outbuildings destroyed. 4,865 fire workers on the job. And 6,000 homes evacuated and one, uh, and one confirmed death in that also. And, and so, the, the, so California has a website that you don't have in New York. It's called the California Wildfire Website. They have so much fire that they have to have public information. That's living in Oklahoma. You know, if you live in Oklahoma, you go to the grocery store and get a bag of groceries, a paper bag. On the paper bag of groceries in Oklahoma, you know what's on there? What to do in case of a tornado. That's a good place to put it. Everybody buys groceries. Well, California has so many fires that they had to start a website on what to do about the fires in their state. And they... Uh, they said it's important that you get set, prepare yourself and your home for the possibility of having to evacuate. They said there are three main preparation actions that should be complete and familiar to all members of your household. One, there's three steps for getting set. One, and I say there's, this could be applied to rescuing the perishing. Number one, they said create a wildfire action plan that includes evacuation. And they're talking about their home, their family, and their pets. But if you're thinking about the wildfire that's coming that God promised, you need to think about getting your family out. You need to uh, think about getting your family saved by the grace of God so they don't have to go through the end-time events which God said will surely come as a thief in the night. This earth is going to be burned up. The Lord will come. The earth is going to be set on fire. And you need to get set for that. You need to understand that that's not just a pipe dream. It's not a fairy tale. It's the Word of God. As surely as He came the first time, He will come again. He promised to do that. Amen. And then, secondly, they said, if you're going to get set, you need to assemble an emergency supply kit for each person in your household. You know what the first thing I did when I, we have grandchildren? We have six grandchildren and three great-grandchildren. And the first thing I did for the grandchildren uh, when they were very young, is I got them little New Testaments and wrote a note to them and put my picture in there. I want them to remember that long after I'm gone, they, I hope they still have that little New Testament that I gave them, and that's their emergency preparation kit. I want them to read the Word of God so they can know how to escape the wrath that's coming. I want them to know how to pray. I want them to know the Lord as their Savior. I, didn't, I just didn't want to leave them a bunch of toys and, and money and, and things. I'd like to leave them the idea that they're the, they're the offspring of people who are believers, they're Christians, they've trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, and we are trying to leave a heritage for them. So that's part of our emergency evacuation kit. And then thirdly, they said fill out a family communication plan that includes important evacuation and contact information. Well, uh, folks need to know how to be saved. They need to know how they can receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior so they can escape 
the coming wrath. You say, well, preacher, I never heard anybody put it like that. I know. We're we all just kind of going through life, just kind of going through life, and just uh, not expecting the Lord to come, and we think He's slack concerning His promise. And, and we go to the football games, and we get involved in hockey and baseball and everything else, and we're not even paying attention to the end-time events as predicted in the Word of God. So that brings me to the third point. It says, not only the Lord and the earth, but I want you to look at verse 11. It says, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? So we talked about the Lord, the earth, and you. Because here we are, here we are, and we're, we're not living back when Noah was alive or when Adam was alive. We're living in the time when we have an open-ended promise for the Lord to come and that His long-suffering is going to end. The grace, the age of grace, the church age is going to end one of these days. And so he says, Wherefore, beloved, seeing you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found in Him in peace without spot and blameless. Peter said that in 2 Peter 3.14. So as you see such a state of things shall take place, and you have the expectation of enjoying the blessedness of it, and we all who are saved are going to enjoy the, the second coming. We're going to be glad to be at home and be with the Lord, but there's going to be a lot of havoc and devastation and heartache for those that are left behind, lots of it. And so we ought to be diligent in the use of every means and influence of our lives and the grace that God gives us that we may be found of Him, the judge of the quick and the dead, without spot, without any uh, contagion of sin in our soul and blameless, holy and innocent, but useful in our lives. For it says we ought to be found of Him in peace. And uh, we ought to have the peace of God, we ought to have the peace with God, and we ought to have peace from God. Uh, When the angels announced the birth of Jesus Christ, uh, they talked about peace on earth. But the peace on earth was not peace from army to army. It's the peace that comes from within. We have peace with God because Jesus Christ, He's the Prince of Peace. He's the one that takes away the the warring uh, uh, that goes on between us and uh, be, uh, because of sin in our life. And he, he, makes, uh, he gives us peace with God. And uh, uh, Paul said we're, we're justified by faith and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he said not only in peace but without spot. That, that means unrebukable. Uh, and... Uh, Paul said that I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things and before Christ Jesus who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession that thou keep his, this commandment without spot unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So <clears throat> remember he said that the church was to be cleansed and washed by the washing of the water of the word. Why? In Ephesians 5.27 it says that it should be holy and without blemish. That's how a church can be pure before God. It's cleansed by the washing of God's Word, not washing on the outside, but washing our hearts, washing us by the reading and, and meditating on the Word of God. And so uh, one author said, this means that you keep His commandment without spot. Let, let, let there be no blot on the book on God's Word. Add nothing to it, take nothing from it, and change nothing in it that were kept blameless, without spot. Blameless is the third thing that he says Blameless uh, in the day of Jesus Christ means without offense, as uh, Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, without offense until the day of Jesus Christ, unblameable in holiness before God. So 
And then Paul said he is praying for the church at Thessalonica that they would be preserved, that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be good when God comes that he would find those among us that he could say, well done. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now, I want to tell you something. In order to get a well done, you have to do well. You're not going to get a well done just because you hope so or you, you, you can spell Jesus. You're going to get a well done if you spend your life doing what he told you to do. Living the way he told you to do. Blameless, without spot, unrebukable in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. If you find yourself doing what God said he would do and what Jesus did himself, then you might get a well done when he comes again. But I'll tell you, there's a lot of people that name themselves Christians and they're not doing very well. They're carnal. They're worldly. They have the appetite of wickedness. And they're, they don't care much about the things of God. No, no. They're too busy to get involved with church activity. They're too busy to go on visits. They're too busy to, and they have too many expenses to give to God and do the things that God. Listen, God doesn't need your money. He needs your allegiance. He doesn't need your money. God, God could make the trees grow money, but when you give money, it shows you honor Him as your Lord. That's the, that's the difference. He doesn't, we don't take up money because God needs it. God doesn't need anything. And He's not surprised by anything. But he's looking for people who will put him first in their appetites, in their attitudes, in their neighborhood, on their jobs. They'll love the Lord with all their heart as he said they must. And so we're living in a time when I think we're going to be put to the test about these matters. One day when Hudson Taylor was traveling on a Chinese uh, ship from Shanghai to Ningpo, he had been witnessing to a man named Peter who rejected the gospel, was under deep conviction. And in the course of events, this man named Peter fell overboard, but no one made any effort to save him. Well, Hudson Taylor sprang to the mast, let down the sail, and jumped overboard in hopes of finding his friend, but no one joined him to help Taylor in his frantic search. And he saw a fishing boat nearby and yelled at them, asked them to help, but they wouldn't do it unless he paid them. So after he bartered away every penny that he had, the fishermen stopped they're fishing and began to look for Peter. In less than a minute of dragging their net, they found him, but it was too late. They were too busy fishing to care about saving a drowning man. They saved his body, but they didn't save his life. You know, I think sometimes we're too busy with our jobs and other activities to take time to rescue those who are without Christ. They need to be rescued. They need somebody to have compassion on them, and that's why it says, uh, that God wants us to be involved in to rescue the perishing. And God wants us, He saved us for that purpose. I, I, I think that sometimes we, we get too socially involved with life to understand that Christianity is not about having a happy life. Christianity is about having the joy of God in your soul and about living for God and doing what God wants you to do with your life. And I, and I think, you know, I believe this with all my heart. I believe that God saves every sinner that calls on His name through Jesus Christ. Don't you believe that? But I believe also that God calls every sinner that He saves. He didn't save you, as I say so many times, to decorate the church. God saved you to work for Him. He saved you and He said, Work, for the night is coming when no man can work. Pray the Lord of the harvest that He had sent forth laborers unto His harvest. 
for the fields are ripe already unto harvest, and the field is the world. I like what one fellow said, what in the world are you doing for Christ Jesus? Let's stand together. Every head bowed. Father in heaven, we love you tonight, and we thank you for the good things that have already come from the efforts of this people in this place. And Lord, if there's even one here that has a spirit of mediocrity or slothfulness, I pray that being surrounded with so many lost people that are so near to their eternal destiny, that you'd help us each one to shirk off the, the works of darkness and walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. Thank you today for this church and this preacher and these people, and I pray that you'll help them, Lord, not to be offended, but rather to see that you've saved them on purpose for your own glory. And I pray that they'll submit themselves to everything that you want for them and do the best they can with what you've given them to work with. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.